Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. After his father departed, Abdulaziz married a Christian princess. It is said that she was the daughter of Roderick, king of Al-Andalus, whom Tarek killed. She brought him a great fortune in worldly things such as cannot be described. When she came to him, she said, Why do I not see the people of your kingdom glorifying you? They do not prostrate themselves before you as the people of my father's kingdom glorified him and prostrated themselves before him. He did not know what to say to her, so he commanded that the side of his palace be pierced with a small door. He used to give audience to the people, and for this purpose he would come inside of the door so that anyone entering to see him would have to lower his head on account of the smallness of the door. She was in a hidden spot, watching the people. And when she saw him, she said to Abdulaziz, Now you are a great king. The people heard, however, that he had constructed the door for this purpose. And some believed that she had made him a Christian. So Habib and Zayed and their friends from the Arab tribes, when they heard about it, stirred up a rebellion against him. They decided to kill Abdulaziz. They went to his muezzin and said, Give the call to prayer at night so that we may come out for prayers. So the muezzin called out and intoned the call to prayer. And Abdulaziz came out and said to his muezzin, You have rushed indeed, giving the call to prayer at night. 
He then went to the mosque. Those of the rebel party had already gathered there, as well as others who were present for prayers. Abdulaziz went to the front and began to recite. When the event happens, there is no lie in the event, casting some low and raising others high. Whereupon, Habib struck his sword at Abdulaziz's head. Abdulaziz turned away in flight until he came to his house. And he went into his garden and hid under a bush. Habib and his companions fled, but Ziyad followed him. He came upon his tracks and found him under the bush. Be merciful, Ziyad. I will give you whatever you ask. But he answered, You may not taste life after this, and he finished him off and he cut off his head. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez, and this is Episode 5, Ambitions as a Raider. This is the story as it comes down to us from Ibn Abd al-Hakam, an Egyptian historian who lived in the 9th century. Many sources claim that the assassination was ordered by the caliph himself because he was worried that Abdulaziz was getting too powerful and getting ideas of splitting from the Umayyad caliphate and make al-Andalus into his own kingdom. It's possible, but we'll never know for sure. There are other versions of this tale with slight variations, but the end result is always the same. The assassination of Al-Andalus's first governor, Abdulaziz. Over the next 40 or so years, Al-Andalus was plunged into a chaotic time where governors were made and unmade with dizzying speed. The province was beginning to have internal power struggles for land and wealth, and external power struggles between the people of Al-Andalus and the Caliph in Damascus. The conquerors of Iberia and their immediate descendants were starting to get concerned since now that the hard work of conquest was done, that new arrivals from the Middle East and North Africa would start pouring in and demand a share of the land and riches to be had, and their anxieties were not unfounded. People were coming. And the Caliph, of course, did have plans for Al-Andalus. However, Al-Andalus was the newest and most distant province of the empire, which made it only loosely connected to the rest of the Caliphate. So, the amount of control the Caliph could exert was hampered by these vast distances. To the point that for the most part, barring a few exceptions, it was the governor of North Africa who appointed the governor for Al-Andalus not the caliph himself. One of the major problems with this method of appointment is that the governors who were selected were, by and large, outsiders, who had never even been to Iberia before. 
Consequently, they were wholly unprepared for the tense and complex situation they were stepping into, which was a serious issue since, thanks to the practical necessities of the Muslim conquest, where each polity had made individual agreements and treaties with the conquerors, it left Al-Andalus a hodgepodge mess of inconsistent arrangements and expectations. This was the context facing the governor that replaced Abdulaziz, a man by the name of Al-Hodh, who arrived in Al-Andalus maybe in 716 AD, accompanied by 400 soldiers. Al-Hodh only governed for about two or three years, but he did make the most of his time. Al-Hodh is credited for several significant events. First, he was the one responsible for relocating the capital from Seville to Córdoba, where he established a garrison and imposed a peace tax on the local Christians. He then followed up on the original conquest trail with the objective of laying down the foundations for an actual administrative structure. As he traveled, he dispensed justice by adjudicating grievances between the locals and the conquerors, especially in regards to land ownership. He is also noted in the sources for prosecuting, jailing, and torturing Berbers who concealed undeclared loot, and who were allegedly doing whatever they wanted while ignoring the authority of the governors. Actually, the issue of Berbers hoarding undeclared loot seems to have been quite a significant concern for the Arabs. And it's a concern that will come back around in the near future. Once this consolidation of authority and power was underway, Al-Hodh then proceeded to establish an organized form of tax collection. To this end, he sent out what sources refer to as judges to collect taxes and send them along to Córdoba. And if you recall last episode, many of these so-called judges included Visigothic Christian nobles, who were tasked by Muslim officials to collect these taxes on their behalf. He also began to mint coins in order to facilitate the distribution of plunder and the payment of taxes. Interestingly, the coins issued by Al-Hodh actually bear monotheistic inscriptions, both in Latin and in Arabic, and they seem to have been modeled after North African Byzantine designs. Now, our sources like to portray these tax-collecting measures that were being implemented as the result of the governors being greedy and money-grubbing. But the thing is, one of the principal reasons the governors were being sent to the provinces was to establish a tax collection infrastructure. Because it kind of defeats the point of having an empire if you can't extract wealth from your provinces. And at this point in time, from the perspective of the caliph, Al-Andalus was notorious as a tax-dodging money pit that needed to be reined in and actually pay the caliph what he was owed. And he was owed a lot. In Muslim law, a fifth of the wealth seized in conquest belonged to the caliph, just as a fifth had been reserved for the Prophet Muhammad. But it seems like the caliphs really hadn't received much, if any, revenues from the Iberian conquest thus far. This initiative was aimed to correct that. Another distinction that Al-Hadh holds is that in 717 AD, he was the first Arab general to cross over the Pyrenees 
into a strip of land of southwestern France, then called Septimiana, that was still held by the Visigoths. Yes, the Visigoths. They are still hanging in there in this small little kingdom. This first crossing by Alhoth is thought to have been just a scouting trip to get the lay of the land. Later, he did attempt subsequent raids into Septimiana, but these all ended in failure. In that same year of 717, a new caliph ascended to the throne, the great reformer Umar II. And in 718, Umar recalled Alhoth and appointed a new governor for Al-Andalus, a man by the name of Al-Samah ibn Malik al-Hawlani, who it is said was accompanied by a military force that was equal in number to the original conquering army of 711, whatever that number may have been. One of the assignments that Al-Samah was tasked with was implementing the new fiscal reforms that Umar II had been introducing throughout the empire. To that end, his first task was to create and send to the caliph a detailed description of Al-Andalus and of its geographical features, so that the caliph could gain an understanding of what exactly he was ruling over. Al-Samah then decided it would be a really super-duper idea to reward his followers that had accompanied him all the way to Iberia with plots of land in Al-Andalus. In order to accomplish this goal, he first had to distinguish and separate land that had been taken by force versus land that had been taken by treaty. This was actually an incredibly important distinction to make. In Islamic law, if land was conquered by force, it became the property of the conquerors. And the revenues of those conquered lands were to be used for the benefit of the Muslims as the ruler saw fit. If lands were taken peacefully, then they would remain the property of the inhabitants and could only pass over into Muslim ownership by inheritance, purchase, or conversion of the owner. Al-Samah then exercised his right as governor to take a fifth of the land that was taken by force as the government's share. And then he distributed the remaining four-fifths among the new arrivals. As you can imagine, the people of the conquest did not like this one bit and wasted no time in sending a delegation directly to the caliph to air their grievances. The caliph heard the delegation's demands and reached a compromise where all land that was taken as plunder was restored to the conquerors. However, they were now liable to pay a tithe on this land. The newcomers were accommodated by dividing the fifth that was originally intended as the government's share, as territorial concessions. This episode is demonstrative of the prevailing attitude among the people of the conquest and their descendants. They were bitterly hostile to anyone who attempted to take control of the revenues of the province, to the point where governors were forced to either work with them or be forced out of office. Al-Samah also ordered that the land be assessed for the first time for taxation purposes, with the intention of sending the surpluses on to Damascus. At least, that was the idea. In reality, Al-Samah was allowed to keep the surplus revenues in order to pay salaries and the expenses of the Holy War. 
Wait, holy war? What holy war? Well, you see, there's a concept in Islam that I haven't touched upon yet. And that is of Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Arab. Now, I feel it's important to add a note here that I'm not a religious scholar by any means. So, my knowledge of both Christian and Islamic theological concepts is rudimentary at best. And what I'm about to explain is an idea that has changed based upon time and place, and whose exact meaning has been debated by religious and secular scholars for literally centuries. So please know that to my understanding, this is what these concepts meant at the point in time we are discussing. Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Arab directly translates into House of Islam and House of War. The House of Islam means territory in which Muslims are not only free to practice their religion, but where Islamic law has been instituted and reigns supreme. The House of War means lands of the non-believers, and by strict definition, in a state of perpetual holy war, also known as jihad. Attached to the concept of Dar al-Arab, especially in the early days of expansion, was the belief that it was the duty of Muslim rulers to extend the House of Islam into the lands of the non-believers. An aspect of this idea that I ran across and I found to be pretty interesting is that expanding the House of Islam was not necessarily synonymous with forced conversion, but rather the expansion of territory in which Islamic law was the highest law of the land. The Dar al-Arab in question were the Christian-held territories in the north of the peninsula and the Christian lands across the Pyrenees Mountains that were held by the remnants of the Visigoths and the Franks. So far, whenever they wanted or needed to supplement their income, the Muslims would simply go and raid Christian territory. The problem they were starting to encounter, though, is that the only Christian land left in the peninsula was located in difficult and inaccessible mountain areas of the north. Additionally, these lands were technically already under Muslim rule at this point, though, as we will see very soon, that will not be the case for too much longer. This reality had two effects. The first was to bring into focus the fact that many of the conquerors were going to have to make do with what they already had without the prospect of further increasing their wealth through violent theft. The second effect was to redirect such energy towards the regions of Septimiana and Aquitaine, located in the south and southeastern portions of modern-day France, respectively. But before we move on, we need to stop and catch up with the Iberian Christians in the north of the peninsula. As you know, some members of the Visigothic aristocracy fled to the north at the time of the initial conquest. However, it seems that the number of refugees that made it all the way to the north was actually quite low, and the impact that they would have on the events to come was minimal. The traditional narrative that you typically find in school textbooks and summarizations of this period like to paint a picture where a bunch of Visigothic refugees gather in the north and band together with the locals, where they daringly resist the attempted control of Muslim forces. But modern scholarship, 
paints a more nuanced view, taking into account existing social structures and the probable motivations of the local nobility. As usual, putting together the pieces of what exactly was going on is challenging. It appears that already present in those northern territories and in the region of the Asturias specifically, and I will be posting a map of this region on social media, was a noble by the name of Pelagius. Pelagius was a member of the local aristocracy that probably had its origins in late Roman times. Though he was also part of the Visigothic nobility, it would be wise to view his interests as firmly entrenched in the north. The Visigoths had already tried to establish control over this region multiple times, but had met with limited success, resulting in a loose hold of the area, an area whose population already had a well-earned reputation for being resistant to any central government, be it Roman, Visigothic, or Islamic. The regional lords of this area were already used to a large degree of autonomy by the time the Muslims showed up. When Musa and Tarek rolled through the area, they quote-unquote pacified the territory through the type of pacts that we talked about last episode, where in exchange for submission and attacks, the locals were allowed to keep their internal power structures and religious freedom. It is within this context of powerful land-owning nobles who possess a relative degree of authority and independence that we must place Pelagius. Sometime after the Muslim arrival, a council of nobles was held in the Asturias, where Pelagius was elected as princeps, or prince. Most histories will state that he was elected as king, but it seems like this was more of a case where, at least initially, the office he was elected into was more of a representative office than one of overlordship. His main duties consisted of collecting the taxes in the name of the caliph and to be the representative of the Asturian lords when dealing with the Muslim authorities. However, an extremely important point to remember is that this move to present a more united Asturian front through the election of a prince or king was in no way intended to be some kind of Visigothic restoration. These were local lords with local interests doing exactly what they had always done. Sometime after being elected, Pelagius met with the regional nobles and decided to launch a rebellion against their new Muslim overlords by refusing to pay the taxes owed. The Muslim regional governor, a man by the name of Menuza, caught wind of this and decided to gather the troops at his disposal and launch several attacks on the Asturians. However, these attacks were unsuccessful, so he called for reinforcements from Córdoba. The capital city duly sent what reinforcements they could, which modern estimates place between 800 to 1400 soldiers as opposed to what the Chronicle of Don Alfonso III claims, which is that the Muslims showed up with 180,000 soldiers. But anyway, now that they were reinforced, the Muslim forces gathered and launched a renewed attack. Which brings us to a battle that has taken on legendary and definitely exaggerated status. The Battle of Covadonga. There are differing accounts on the exact details of this battle, so 
I'm going to stick to just the very bare bones of the story. The reinforced Muslim forces, led by the general Al-Kamah, made their way into the Asturian territory in search of Pelagius and his band of rebels. This ended up being a fatal mistake. Al-Kamah was led into a narrow valley where Pelagius was laying in wait for him. The narrowness of the valley negated the numerical superiority of the Muslim army, where they were ambushed and defeated. The Muslims suffered great losses, including Al-Kamah himself, who was killed in the fighting. And that's pretty much it. A relatively simple, small-scale skirmish, really. But over the next century or so, this battle is going to get the royal propaganda treatment, where its significance gets blown up into the realm of divine intervention. You see, later Asturian monarchs needed to bolster their right to rule. So, in order to do that, they latched on to this particular battle to impress upon their subjects that God intervened in the fight against the Muslims and gave them victory. And not only that, later propaganda also claimed that Pelagius's long-term plan was to restore the Visigothic monarchy to its rightful place. This would have the effect of connecting the new Asturian monarchy to the defunct Visigothic monarchy, and thereby further legitimizing their right to rule. This is a tactic that will be employed by future royal houses of the Iberian Peninsula. The claim to be a direct descendant of this Visigothic monarch or that Visigothic monarch will be used ad nauseum for centuries to come. Another major and ultimately more important narrative that was attached to this battle is the claim that the Battle of Covadonga marks the beginning of the so-called Reconquista, or Reconquest, which is the term used by later medieval and modern historians to refer to a series of military campaigns by the Iberian Christian kingdoms to recapture Iberia from the Muslims. The whole idea of Reconquista is actually much more complicated than what it seems like at first glance. And it's an idea that has been called into question in more recent scholarship. But we're going to save that discussion for a later episode. Just to wrap things up with this storyline, Pelagius made a marriage alliance with a certain Pedro, Duke of Cantabria, by marrying his daughter to the Duke's son. Afonso I, thereby combining two major land holdings into a single territorial block, which is considered to be the very genesis of the Kingdom of the Asturias proper, a kingdom that will have a profound impact on the future of the peninsula. While these significant events were taking place, Muslim forces began to push through the Pyrenees Mountains and into the last Visigothic stronghold of Septimiana, which is roughly the same region as Languedoc in modern-day France. And in 719 AD, a Muslim strike force captured the city of Narbonne, whereupon the Arabs and the Berbers settled in, set up a local administration and constructed a mosque attached to the church of Saint Justique. Additionally, with this conquest, the last fragments of Visigothic rule were finally extinguished, 
And this conquered territory was to serve as the base of operations for more ambitious and far-flung raids into the Frankish territories of Aquitaine and the Rhone Valley, with promises of fresh Christian lands just waiting to be raided. However, there was one thing, or should I say one person, that the Arab military planners were not prepared for. A man who would gain legendary status not only in French, but in European history at large. The Frankish Hammer himself, Charles Martel. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.